Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. I've got some uh, really exciting things I want to share with you guys today, but before we do, I was, I was praying this morning, sitting in a, uh, I've got a set of burgundy chairs, um, much like the color many of you wore uh, this, this morning. I kept seeing people wearing burgundy uh, all day long today. I was sitting in my burgundy chair in my living room this morning and uh, really just felt overwhelmed and appreciative um, that I get to do what I do. And uh, I want you guys to know this is not something that I take for granted. Um, this is an incredible responsibility. Um, but honestly, it's a blast. It's a blast. Getting to do what God put in your heart, um, what God's put in my heart, and to help you guys is amazing. I was, I was thinking back this morning. Um, it was about 18 years ago when I first came to Our Savior's Church. And uh, 18 years ago, I was presented face-to-face with this vision of this church that, that God wanted to do through this body of people, and uh, it really just captured my heart. I was reminded this morning, this idea of a local church, the fact that we could have a fellowship of people who are so different. I mean, just look around the room for a second. Everybody here is so different and so beautiful. There are people in this room that watch different news broadcasts, vote differently at the ballots, live on different parts of town, dress differently, think differently, work differently, act differently, yet today we could come together and accomplish something bigger than any of us could accomplish on our own. How many of you know that's an amazing thing, that God would do that in a, in a local church? And I'm telling you, it just, I just sat there this morning just so grateful and so thankful of that. 18 years ago, coming to Our Savior's Church, I was face-to-face with a vision to plant churches. And it sounded really amazing that we would plant churches by starting new works, not simply by splitting ones that already existed. I know a lot of us have experience with that. And then to see, it's one thing to, it's, it's one thing to know it's going to happen, it's another to see it happen as we continue to plant churches and start churches and plant churches and start churches. It's been amazing to watch that. I came face to face with a vision here at Our Savior's Church for strong marriages, through the, through the ministry here, men would get stronger, women would get more beautiful and strong in their own right, and together a strong marriage would be that foundation for the family. I, I'm amazed at how God has done that and continue to do that through our church as we watch marriages strengthen, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. It's, it's something that I don't take for granted at all. I, I came face to face with a vision for my kids to grow and to be able to continue the work that I started, that one day I'll finish and pass on the baton to do that. How many of you are grateful for a church that thinks about your kids, that has a place for your kids and, and all of that? And I came face to face with a vision that every pastor needed a pastor. And then as a pastor, walking that out and having a man who calls me, I've got, I've got two pastors who call and say, hey, how are you? How are you treating your wife? It's one thing when they ask me that question, it's another when they ask Kayla. I'm like, ask her. Ask her. 
And I just, over the years, have seen so many pastors struggle in ways that they shouldn't have to struggle, trying to carry a weight that they shouldn't have to carry alone. And I'm so grateful and thankful for a church that not only invests in other churches and invests in marriages and invests in families, but invests in their pastors as well. And I'm super grateful and thankful for that. I, I came face to face 18 years ago with a vision to confront giants that have been tormenting our community for so long. Those giants of pride, giants of poverty, giants of prejudice that for so many years get free reign in so many areas of our society, yet in Sunday morning, it's almost as if there's a glimpse of hope that they could be contained, overcome, sent back, and destroyed as the church stands up and does what it's called to do. I came face to face with a vision, and over the last 18 years, I've watched that happen in people's lives and in their relationships and then ultimately in a community. I came here for a relationship, but I stayed for a vision. I stayed for a vision. I was super grateful to have the opportunity to do something. Can you say that with me? Do something. And as I was thinking about this morning and what I wanted to share and all that God had put on my heart, I was just overwhelmed with the idea of, man, God, I get to, I get to do something today and really make a difference, not just in my life, but hopefully in your life as well. For those of you that missed last week when Pastor Eugene was here, he spoke out of the book of Nehemiah. Let me just tell you, it was one of those messages that you just got to go back and listen. Y'all remember Pastor Eugene's message from last week? So powerful, so true. It's one of those messages that will just define kind of who we are and what we're trying to accomplish. He taught out of Nehemiah. And uh, Nehemiah is a, uh, is a gentleman that God used in a pretty incredible way. He started in captivity as a cupbearer for a king. And through this, realized God gave him a burden that his hometown, his community, where he's from, God's people, it was, dis- it was disheveled, it was dismantled. And God gave him a burden to go back, and not only gave him the burden, but the resources to go back and to rebuild. And Nehemiah, through this story, accomplishes something that few people would have been able to do on their own, but Nehemiah not only does it with God, but he does it with the people that God had given him. And it's a fascinating story to go back and listen to Nehemiah. And Pastor Eugene told the story uh, from the early days of the Opelousas campus as they navigated the difficulties of building a multiracial congregation in a region that has been segregated for years. And he reminded us as I've often reminded you, that we are here to tear down pride, poverty, and prejudice. And I was hoping today that with the time that I had, that I could get a lot more specific than just talking about pride and talking about poverty and talking about prejudice, but really taking a minute and drill down, because I believe somebody's got to do something. Can I just tell you, somebody's got to do something. And if that was the message that he shared with us last week, you, you don't get a burden, a burden gets you, Pastor Eugene shared with us. And to realize that it shouldn't be like this. When was the last time you drove around and looked at something and said, it, it shouldn't be like this, man. Somebody's got to do something. And that's really the heart that I have today. And that's something that I want to share with you guys. Somebody has to do something. And here's the reality, y'all. Pride is very real and very alive in our community today. Read the newspaper. There are those in our community who misuse and abuse their authority, or worse, they turn a blind eye to needs that really exist in our community. 
The pride that's pervasive in society says, I'm going to get mine whether anybody else gets theirs or not. I'm going to take the position that I've been afforded and I'm going to use it for my own benefit, not for the benefit of others. It's pride. It, it tears us down. What will I get out of this? I'm, I'm going to get mine even at somebody else's expense. It goes so far as to empower us to think that our way is the better way. That we see somebody living a different way or thinking a different way or acting a different way. But pride will come in and say, well, they shouldn't be like that. My way's the best way. The television station that I watch where I get my news, they really know what's going on. Can I just tell you, it's pride. And if we're not careful, pride will break us. And it will keep us like crabs in a bucket. Can I just tell you, we do not have a leadership shortage here in our society oh there's plenty of people who want to lead plenty of people who want to lead what we really have is a servanthood shortage we don't have enough people that are willing to serve that are willing to say i see something i don't think it needs to be this way and i'm going to give of myself to make sure somebody else gets something that they can't get on their own and can i tell you this only the gospel will bring the power to tear down the pride that exists in our society. Somebody has to do something. Somebody has to do something. It was C.S. Lewis who said this, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. How many of you know our society would be a whole lot better if people would just think about themselves less and think about others When was the last time you heard a politician get up and say, you should vote for me because I'm going to think of myself less through the process? But only the gospel will properly put in perspective both our fallen condition, the gap that exists between a holy and righteous God and the people who on their best day are still like filthy rags before him. Only the gospel can come and level the playing field where you're no better than I am, I'm no better than you are, and the vision that God has for me is too big for me to carry on my own. I need your help. When was the last time you looked at linked arms with somebody and said, hey, what has God put in your heart? I want to help you get there. I want to help you. What has God put in your heart? There's no shortage of television shows that'll teach you. You can do it. You can be everything you want to be. But nobody's out there saying the greatest thing you could ever be is somebody who helps somebody else accomplish something. And I'm so amazed when I read the gospel. It shows us that not only have we been redeemed, we've been paid for by his blood. He served us. And in serving us has given up more than anyone will ever be asked to give up for another. Serving another person is not only easier because of Christ, It is necessary because of Christ. And if we're going to be the kind of church to tear down pride in our area, it's going to start on our knees with our hands, blisters and sweat as we go to say, I want you to have a better place for you and I want to help you get there. Amen? Yeah, with me? Am I in the right church this morning? We're talking about this today? Listen to me, church. The greater he is in you, the less of you that will be there. More of him in me is less of me 
in this world, and it's the truth of the gospel that's the antidote to the pride of this world. We're going to be a church that tears down pride in our community. Can I tell you something else that bothers me a lot? The wealthiest nation in the history of nations of the world still struggles with poverty. It shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't be like that at all. There are those in our communities, at our jobs, and in our schools that are struggling to put food on the table. I don't get it. I don't get it. There are those who struggle to clean up after storms. There are kids who are having to be adults for their younger siblings because mom is working three jobs and dad is nowhere to be found. Somebody's got to do something. Somebody has got to do something. There's a gap that exists that should not be so. Can I tell you, folks, this is not an economic problem. If it were an economic problem, we could make some economic decisions, and as a result of that, we could solve this problem of poverty that exists. But can I tell you, it's not an economic problem. It's a spiritual problem that the church must address head on, and we got to get out there and do that. We're here to tear down poverty, not by redistributing wealth but by being generous, not just with our time, but with our resources as well. The Bible doesn't teach to take from those who have and give to those who don't. The Bible teaches he blesses those so they can be a blessing to others. And it's out of an abundance of generosity that everybody's needs are met, not by redistributing what everybody has. You think, you think, you want me to show you? I'll I'll show you. Did you know that you won't do without when you give generously in the name of the Lord? You're not going to do without. One of the first lies that comes to your mind when you think, should I give that person is what is this going to cost me? What am I going to do without? The Bible actually teaches it's completely opposite. Look at this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 through 7. Remember this. A A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously We'll get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. It's a personal decision. Somebody's got to do something. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. Here's every pastor's favorite verse on giving. You ready? God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And we think, well, that's great, Pastor Don. Awesome. Don't miss the next verse. The next verse in this passage brings it all into context. Here's what it says, verse number eight. And God will generously provide all that you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Can I tell you, folks, we don't have enough to live because we haven't had enough to give. And many of us never experience the true abundance and the surplus that God intends for you to have because we've never been as generous as God intends for us to be generous. Generosity doesn't follow sufficiency. It comes before it. It comes before it. You don't get everything you need and more before you start being generous. God looks down and he says, I am a wise steward and I'm going to give where I know it can be given through. How many of you are invested in the stock market? You've got some retirements, things like that. When you get the choice to put your money somewhere, do you want to put your money somewhere where it's going to grow or somewhere where it's going to lose value? Yeah. Why would God be any different? Does God know if he gets it to you, he can get it through you? 
And I would just challenge you, if we're going to tear down poverty in our area, in our community, if somebody's going to do something, we can't start thinking like this world. We have to start thinking like the kingdom. This is not an economic problem. This is a spiritual problem. We are going to be generous, even when it doesn't make sense to the world for us to be generous, because I trust that all the resources in heaven are at my disposal when I do it his way. Pastor Don, are you going to receive an offering right now? No. Somebody's got to do something. I'm just trying to get you fired up. I'm teaching my son how to tithe. You should have seen him yesterday. He's, he's pushing a lawnmower. The neighbor's yard across the street, Miss Tony. She's later in life, and she's got a big backyard, probably half to two-thirds of an acre just in her backyard alone. And uh, Cole can only push a mower. He's only got a starter. Uh, he can only push start it. And he was out there for about three hours yesterday pushing this mower. He's got a vision for an Xbox. <laughs> and I was so proud of him yesterday. She paid him to do the work. And he, he said, Dad, can, can you help me break this down? I, I, I want to make sure that I tithe. He's 12. And he's watching that balance that he needs. He's almost 300 bucks for that Xbox. He's like just got over 200. He's almost there, y'all. But to watch him round up as he put money in to tithe. Hey, Dad, can I, can I bring my tithe money to church this morning? Yeah. He wants to be generous with that. Pastor Jacob, last time Pastor Jacob was here, this is a funny story. Last time Pastor Jacob was here, Pastor said, Cole, I knew you'd be here. I got this for you. Handed him a $5 bill. Cole told, tells me after service, he said, I just put the whole thing in the offering, Dad. And I thought, man, that's so awesome. I found out later, he said, yeah, tithe on $5 is 50 cents, and I didn't want to have to break it, so I just put the whole thing in there <laughs> and, uh, and just did that. I was like, it works either way, son. It works either way. We're going to be generous. We're going to be generous. And Cole knew every time he put that money in that tithe jar, that it would be one less opportunity that he had to get the thing that he needed. How many of you know God's going to reward a young man who's got a desire and a vision, who's not willing to be generous? The Bible says that as you're generous, your sufficiency will come in the middle of that. There's a real prejudice that exists in our community. We can't ignore it. We can't act like it's not there. We have to expose it. I've heard it said that you don't really know how crooked your stick is until somebody comes and lays a straight stick right next to it. And there are those of us that grew up in families and in households and areas or part of the country where a crooked stick seemed normal. And the gospel has a very unique way of coming and laying a very straight stick next to your crooked stick to show you how off you actually are. Can I tell you, if you have a problem with somebody because of the color of their skin, you've got a crooked stick. This is not the kind of church where prejudice takes place. Can I tell you that word prejudice? It's a very interesting word. Very interesting word. It has its roots in Latin. Two words. Latin prea means in advance or before. And judicum, judgment. Do you know that by definition, prejudice means you're making a judgment about somebody before you know anything about them? How illogical is that? 
that we would comment on the basis of something we know nothing about, act, think, or live in a way that is inconsistent with the gospel. It's illogical. You don't even know them. Even the way we refer to skin color is illogical. My daughter, when she was in pre-K-4, came home one day and she was telling me about her friends at school. And I'd listened before and I knew she had a friend named Daniel that she spent a lot of time with. And, and she was telling me and I said, yeah, I know Daniel. She said, no, daddy, that, uh, that you know Daniel with the pink skin. I'm talking about my friend Daniel with the brown skin. And it occurred to me, she doesn't know that you're supposed to call people with brown skin black and people with pink skin white. Where did we get that from? Where did we get that from? And this is what bothers me. She's going to grow up in our society and they're going to tell her that his brown skin is black and that her pink skin is white. It shouldn't be that way. With all those labels come centuries of pain, abuse, hostility, and a division that shouldn't be so church. Somebody's got to do something. Somebody's got to do something. I remember Pastor Eugene's story about Sam and Kim, who were the first African-American couple to attend the campus there. And no matter how much we think we know, no matter how much we think we can relate, no one else there really understood the price that was paid by them to attend that white church. And I'm not saying it's right, I'm just saying it's real. They were paying a price for the gospel just to come to church that others weren't having to pay. Can I tell you something, church? We would do right to honor anyone of any color who's willing to step against the grain of our prejudicial society and say this doesn't exist in our babies, this won't exist in heaven, and it absolutely should not exist here in our churches. But it takes somebody doing something. It takes somebody speaking it. Nothing happens unless something is spoken. Somebody has to do something. Say that with me. Somebody. Somebody. There's a leadership principle that exists in the corporate boardroom and it exists in the local family. And here's that leadership principle. You ready? If you speak to everyone, you essentially speak to no one. The CEO that looks at his executive vice president sitting around the table and says, we got to change, has essentially said nothing to nobody. When Pastor Don is finishing dinner and he looks at his little ones sitting around the table and he says, we need to clean up after dinner. I've essentially told nobody apparently that there's anything to do. But when I say, hey, Cole, can you do the dishes? Madeline, can you sweep the floor? Avery, can you clean off the table? It's amazing how somebody does something. And it's a challenge because somebody else will do it, right? I mean, that's the thought process, right? We're all here. And yes, this is great, Pastor Don. Yes, somebody's going to do that. Somebody has to do that. I was reading an article not too long ago, and they were talking about this thing that happens in society where... They, they tested all these people, and as they were driving down, they would pull off on the side of the road and open the hood and look like the car was broken down, and they watched to see how many people would stop for help. Some people stopped, some people rode on by, and as the article continued, here's where it really got interesting. When they were on a busy highway, you think more people or less people stopped? Less. 
less people stopped. When they were on an abandoned road or out on the outskirts of town with very little traffic, did more people stop or less people stop? More people stopped when there was less people around and less people stopped when there was more people around. Why? Somebody else is going to do it. Somebody else is going to do it. And that's a challenge for me because I'm talking to a room full of people. And I'm explaining to you what God wants to do in us and through us. But if I'm talking to everybody, I'm essentially talking to nobody. And I don't want anybody here to think that somebody else is going to do something about it. I want you to think that you're going to do something about it. Now it got quiet. Y'all were all on board when somebody was going to do something. Now that I said you have to do something, it got awfully quiet in here. Do I personally have a responsibility to do something about this? Do I personally? Then what's it going to be? What's that going to look like? There's a, a natural phenomenon that you can observe in the life of a, of a, of a person and in people as they age. And here's, here's what this is. Older people or younger people more naturally think about themselves. How many of you know this to be true? Older people more naturally think about others. Yes? Everybody's agreeing with me except for the teenagers in the room. Trust me, guys, it's real. I promise. Younger people more naturally think about themselves, and older people more naturally think about others. No surprise here. Did you know that age does not equal maturity? Age does not equal maturity. I say this to my children all the time. Avery especially is number three. Dad, when I get older, can I? Son, it has nothing to do with age. It has everything to do with maturity. Oh, Dad, can I not do that because I'm too young? No. I'm not going to allow you to do that because I haven't seen the maturity that it takes to be able to handle that. You aren't too young. You just haven't shown me enough maturity. Age does not equal maturity. And my household privileges come to those who are mature, not to those who get old. Age is a function of time. Maturity is a function of work and effort and initiative. Cole, as industrious as he is, will not be driving when he turns 16 unless he has the maturity to get behind the wheel. You are welcome. In the physical, younger people think more about themselves than others, and older people think more about others than themselves. Curl your toes up for just a second, church. I'm about to step on them. Because something happens when you put those people in a church environment and you disregard age and you start looking at spiritual maturity, it's almost completely backwards. Here's the weakness of the spiritually immature. They think about others when they should be thinking about themselves. What are other people going to think? What are other people going to say if I do that? If they find out I start going to this church, what are they going to do? If I raise my hands in church, is anybody else watching? It's the weakness of the spiritually immature to think about others when they should be thinking about themselves. God starts to give you discernment and you start to see things that are right and wrong and the spiritually mature immediately start telling everybody else what's wrong with them when they should be looking at what's not right with them. Discernment first comes for us, not for others. You put people in church and it gets backwards. The spiritually immature Start thinking about others 
when they should be thinking about themselves. We see this with Jesus talking to his immature disciples early on in the story. This is Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. Here's what he says. Oh, you can see the speck in your friend's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own. And it's a challenge because you can hear a message like this. And if you're spiritually mature, you'll think it applies to somebody else instead of applying to me. Do I have a personal responsibility? Yes, Pastor Don, somebody must do something. You can, you can relax your toes just a little bit. There's also the weakness of the spiritually mature. Spiritually mature people have weaknesses too. They have a tendency to think about themselves when they should be thinking about others. All the music's too loud, the lights, they're too busy. I prefer a more deeper expository sermon, Pastor. I liked it better the way it used to be. Why do we have to change? It's a challenge. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I met a gentleman who attended our church and um, looked like a really sharp guy, but, but I noticed his, his T-shirt did not match this flannel jacket that he was wearing, um, and it just caught my eye. It was almost Christmas, bright green shirt and red flannel jacket, and he came to the back, and I had an opportunity to introduce myself, and we met, and we talked, and I loved this guy from the moment he opened his mouth. It's just something about him was just so um, contagious, and he loved the service. It was his first time here, and he said, you know, I really do love church, and uh, God has done a work in my life, and I've been attending uh, another one of our campuses, and uh, I thought I would visit today, and uh, here's what he told me. He said, you know, I'm getting a little older in life, Pastor Don. I said, really? You know, he was much older than I am. And he says, yeah, and, and sometimes the music, it gets, it gets a little loud. It gets a little loud, you know, for my taste. And then he did something that shocked me. He said, so that's why I bring these earplugs. I said, really? He said, puts, him, puts him back in his pocket. And uh, he says, you know, and I've got a condition with my eyes that, that sometimes the bright lights make it hard. My eye can't adjust the muscles that, that normally adjust it. it. It really hurts me sometimes if I'm in an environment where there's bright lights in one spot and dim lights in another. I, I just, I can't, I, I can't handle it sometimes. I said, man, I'm sorry to hear that. And he says, so that's why I bring these. And I kid you not, he had a separate pair of glasses that he had taped electrical tape to the top to make himself a visor so that he could sit in church and regardless of what the lights looked like, his eyes wouldn't be distracted by that. And I said, man, there's nothing going to keep you out of church, is there? He said, sometimes the air conditioning gets a little cold too. And that's why I'm wearing my jacket. And I thought to myself, how amazing that a man who had every physical reason not to be here wanted to eliminate every obstacle to make sure that he could be in God's presence and not worry about what anything else was going on in the middle of that. I told him, I said, you're my hero and somebody's going to hear about this, this conversation, I promise you, sooner or later. Now before you get mad at me and before you think that I'm calling you immature, Please know this. I know exactly how you feel. Just this week, Kayla told me I was immature and I needed to grow up. 
And because of that, she's no longer allowed in my treehouse. Okay. <laughs> it's a church thing. It's a maturity thing, guys. We see this with the Apostle Paul as he's teaching and leading the church at Corinth. How many of you know the church at Corinth was a very wicked place? There was a lot of immature things that were happening at the church in Corinth. This is what Paul says to the immature Christians, the church at Corinth. He says, pay attention to you. In 1 Corinthians 3.1, he says this. He says, my friends, you're acting like people of this world. That's why I could not speak to you as spiritual people. You were like babies as far as your faith in Christ is concerned. Think, golly, Paul, that's kind of harsh. Don't you want these people to love church? Don't you want them to come? Aren't you trying to start a new thing that's in the middle of this? Paul says, I know what you need because I see where you are. And I'm going to help you get there. These things I'm trying to help you are for you, not them. 1 Corinthians is full of lessons like discernment, temptation, self-control, because the church in Corinth was immature. Oh, but when he talks to the church in Philippi, Do you know the Philippians, the letter we have in our Bible, Philippians, is the only New Testament epistle written by Paul that doesn't correct any doctrinal issues whatsoever. He is talking to a mature congregation, the spiritually mature. And what does Paul say to the spiritually mature? How does he lead them? He says, consider others better than yourself. Look at this from Philippians chapter two, verse one. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort for love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from self-ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Something crazy happens Can I tell you, that should be the goal of every church, and it will be a defining characteristic of this church as we mature. We are going to continue to think about others. The church is the only organization that exists for its non-members. We are here not just for us, but for the people who aren't here yet. You were here because somebody made a sacrifice so you could have a pew to sit in that Sunday when you came here for the first time, and we're going to make decisions based on those who aren't here yet. Because that's what we're supposed to do. If I were to take a ball and put it on the end of a long string and start swinging this and spin it up nice and fast over my head, get it up and going really, really good for quite some time, and I let it go, what would happen to that ball? It would fly which direction? Outward. How crazy would that be if I spin it up, get it going really, really fast, nice and fast, nice and going... And let it go, and it just came into itself. Can I tell you that's a danger of churches sometimes if we're not careful? We'll get up and going and start thinking about ourselves and make decisions about ourselves and make decisions that work for us and make decisions that we feel are the right thing to do. And and all of a sudden, we start acting contrary to nature when we start making decisions for ourselves and we spin in on ourselves somebody's got to keep before us that there are people out there who aren't in here that need us. And we got to make decisions. So if any time we let go, you go out into this world, not coming in straight to the church. 
There needs to be an outward momentum to our congregation. Are y'all with me today? Y'all getting something from this? That's the beauty of Nehemiah, and that's the beauty of the story of Pastor Eugene that he told last week. And if you missed it, please go back and listen. Not only was Nehemiah burdened, not only did he share the burden to engage the people, and not only did he get their eyes off their current realities and onto what needed to happen, he helped position the people to be able to make the greatest impact in their community. And that's a responsibility I feel, feel. It's one that I take. I want us to be positioned to make the greatest impact in our community that we can possibly make. Is there anybody else that's with me? Somebody's got to do something. So here's my question. How do we best position ourselves as a congregation in order to reach the people of our community and our area? Isaac, can you come? Come help me here. Because here's the big vision, y'all. We're here to make disciples who make disciples. Don't forget that. We're here to show that disciple how to learn, how to grow, how to invite, how to gather in groups, how to lead so that they can go and impact their community. And in impacting our community, we are here to tear down pride, poverty, and prejudice. Not because somebody has to do something, but because who has to do something? I do. Because I have to do something. And one of the greatest tools we have at our disposal, of all the things that we have, we can small group, we can gather, we can leave, all, one of the greatest tools that we have to reach our community is our weekend service. It's an amazing opportunity for people to come, experience the presence of God, engage with other believers. But I'm telling you, we're not having church service just to have church service. This is not a celebration at the end of a hard week. This is an inspiration at the beginning of the next. Because if we're really going to make a difference in our community, it's not going to happen in an hour and a half here on a Sunday morning. It's going to happen Monday through Saturday as the people who God has called to do something step out and do something about it. Church is not the finish line. It's the starting block. It's not the touchdown. It's the huddle. Where we get in and we find out a call to play and what God has called us to do. And I've got such a heart and such a burden for our church. Any church that makes this all about the weekend won't be the kind of church that makes disciples. They won't be the kind of church that teaches a disciple how to reach their community. And they won't be the kind of church that tears down pride, poverty, and prejudice. And any church that isn't willing to adjust and change along the way to the best way to make disciples is thinking only of themselves and is spinning into themselves. See, right now, we are one congregation and we're meeting in two separate service times on Sunday, nine o'clock and 11. Can I tell you, church, it's not the best way for us to make disciples. Not right now. Not in the season we're in. Not with what God has called us to do. So here's what we're going to do, and I hope you come with me. But in very soon time, in a very short order, in just a very few weeks, 
we're going to combine the best that we have from 9 a.m. and the best that we have from 11, and we're going to join together in one Sunday morning service at 10 o'clock on a Sunday, and we're going to make a difference. See, right now when people come, they get half of the best that we have to offer. Now, I know you like this nine o'clock service, and I'm very proud of y'all. You've been growing. But when you see the growth that's been taking place at the 11 o'clock service, you're going to be amazed. When you get to come and sit side by side by people that you haven't seen in quite some time, and and y'all still go here? I'm excited for this. And I think it's the best way right now for us to accomplish this mission until God has another way for us to do it. And I'm going to lead you, I promise. If you'll give me a heart to follow, I'll make sure you never have something, you don't have something you can't follow. I need you. Beginning November 14th, next month, we're going to move to both services together to a single Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. God has given us some incredible leaders and God has given us a large enough facility. Our best foot forward is to put all of those into a single worship service on Sunday. We're going to grow better. We're going to serve better. We're going to equip better and we're going to reach better. So grab your cell phones and take a picture of the screen. November 14th, new service time, 10 a.m. Oh, we don't have it. You'll have to believe me and take my word for it. If you show up at nine, you'll be early. If you show up at 11, you'll be a little late. We'll still love you. I can't wait to see what happens. I can't wait to see. You think worship's exciting with a room this size? Wait till it's fuller with everybody else. We're gonna make a difference in our community. And if you're just visiting today, you picked a great Sunday to come because we're on a mission. God has called us to accomplish some things in our community and we want you to come along. I want you to jump in. And for others, this transition may be the best time for you to step up and take the next step that God has been, has been putting before you. Change into something. Don't let change happen around you. Change into something and watch what God will do in your life. Let me invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're on a mission, church. Our city needs us. More importantly, our city needs you. You need to do something to tear down the pride, the poverty, and the prejudice that exists in our community. You do. And we're going to build a church where pink-skinned and brown-skinned people can join hearts and missions to reach a community. We're going to have one heart. We're going to have one mission. We're going to be on one accord because it's what the kingdom of heaven will look like. And I hope you can see it. Jesus said you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You cannot even see the kingdom of heaven unless you've been born again. There's a very real heaven and there's a very real hell and you'll spend eternity in one or the other. That's why this is a big deal. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Don, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, but I'd like to. 
God has stirred my heart and I know I need to make a difference. And I see things in our community that need to change. I see things that are different. I see things that shouldn't be that way. And God is stirring me up. I've never been born again, Pastor Don, but I know something inside of my heart is different this morning. I want to pray to be born again. I would tell you it's just as simple as A, B, C. A, admit that you're a sinner, that your sin has separated you from a living, a loving and a holy God. And that apart from something crazy happening, the miraculous, you'll spend eternity away from him in hell. It's B, believe that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross. He lived a sinless life and paid a sinner's debt, the debt that you couldn't pay. And he did that for you. And then C, you confess. Confess him as Lord and Savior, that his way is better, and that apart from him, you can do no good thing. And if we're ever going to accomplish the mission that God has for us as a church, if you're ever going to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Don, will you pray with me? I want to lead you in a simple prayer. You can do it right from your pew. I'm not going to ask you to come up front. I want you just to raise your hand so I know who I'm praying with. And we're all going to pray this prayer together. If that's you and you'd like me to pray with you today to be born again, can you raise your hand for me? Let me see your hands raised. Thank you, I see your hand. Thank you, I see your hand. Anybody else before we move on and pray? Pastor Don, I want to be born again today. Awesome. Those of you that raised your hands, I'm going to ask you to pray with me as I pray this aloud. And church family, we're going to pray this together to symbolize the fact that nobody does Christianity alone. Say this prayer with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you're the son of God. I believe that on the cross, you took my sin, my shame, and my guilt, and you died for it. I believe you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin to follow you with all my heart, no matter what it costs me. God is my father. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit is my helper. And heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church, can we celebrate with those that raised their hand for the first time?